Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking about the 50th anniversary of Title IX with the director of the Gender Equity Initiative at the National Nonprofit, a group that I very much support, the Positive Coaching Alliance. Her name is Kim Turner. We're going to go to Kim in just a sec. We also have choice words about, oh my goodness, what's happening in the world of golf right now with Saudi Arabia. Um, and we're probably going to have some more surprises as well. But first, let's talk to Kim Turner. So, Kim, thanks so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Absolutely. Uh, thrilled to be here. Yeah, I, I want to break it down for my listeners who might be very new to the topic. So, can you start by just telling us, in, in most basic form, what is Title IX? Yeah, sure. So I've been doing a lot of Title IX explaining in this 50th anniversary year, and I like to break it down for folks. Um, basically, it is a 37-word statute passed in 1972, 50 years ago, uh, bipartisan effort, recognizing that there was a lot of gender inequity in federally funded education, and we needed a provision to deal with that. So it's a it's a federal law that applies to any federally funded educational institution from preschool to elementary, middle, high school, college and university, uh, academics and athletics, uh, anything under that educational rubric. And it says you can't be gender discriminatory in your administration of education. Um, so that's that's Title IX in a nutshell. And of course, there's lots of specifics and regulations that have been passed since 1972. Uh, but that that is it in a, a very small nutshell. Wow. I mean, I feel like Title IX, what people always think it has to do with sports and athletics, first and foremost. And yeah. Because, well, why, why do you think the legacy of it is so tied in with sports when it was meant to be something much more expansive than just the athletic field? Yeah, you know, I think we do forget a, a bit nowadays that the, the statute, when it was passed, uh, they had a lot of hearings and testimony and comments from the public. And there were, say, many girls and women who were not being permitted to apply for college or, or a graduate school program or were facing really kind of blatant gender inequity in, say, higher education and as, as well as primary and secondary education. I think the, in, ter in terms of why athletics has taken the, the forefront, um, frankly, I think in the United States, we're really passionate about sports. It just matters a lot um, that we have the chance to play sports and how sports are run. We love athletics. Um, but, you know, I think obviously, uh, you know, sports is a microcosm of society, as you all know from your amazing writings and work. And so uh, gender inequity and equity in sports has taken a, a front seat, I think, in recent years because we see so blatantly say when girls and women are treated unequally or the playing field is uneven. And that's why I think, you know, sports and gender equity has has come into focus and is you know still something that we're working on. What did the sports world for girls and women look like before Title IX and how has Title IX transformed it over the years? Yeah. So, you know, I can speak a little bit personally on this one because I am fortunate to be part of a, a four generation family of female athletes. So mm. I can I can say that, um, you know, my grandmother, uh, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, growing up in Kentucky, didn't have any sports teams to play on, no sport opportunity, had so you know several brothers who were basketball players, and she desperately wanted to play and had literally nothing in the way of opportunity. Um, she did eventually get onto a company team, 
during World War II, uh, when there were a few more leagues of their own opening up for women. Uh, and then she passed on that love of sports to my mom, who in the 50s and 60s still lacked uh, opportunity to play in school um, and was a pre-Title IX person. Uh, but she ended up skateboarding and surfing because there weren't rules to keep girls out. Um, and then eventually played volleyball um, in high school and college as, as just as Title IX was being passed. So, you know, really the landscape was bare for girls and women in sports before Title IX, or it was very fledgling. And then after Title IX, um, you know, fast forward my experience growing up in the 80s and 90s, I did have a lot more sport opportunities and millions of girls uh, and women were given opportunities in, in school sports, um, you know, especially 80s, 90s, it really kind of excelled and accelerated. Uh, the schools and the colleges started adding a lot of girls and women's programs. Um, and then now my daughter, um, who, who is in elementary school, you know, has really a, a wealth of options. Um, so we've seen girls' opportunities in high school go from 300,000, about 300,000 to 3.4 million opportunities for high school girls to play sports. And that's just one kind of stat that shows the progress made. I'll quickly add that girls of color and girls in low-income communities are still lacking opportunity and equity, especially. So there's there's folks that have just not seen the promise of Title IX manifest in their community, their school, their college. Mm, so when people pose the question to you, uh, have we hit the finish line because of Title IX in terms of equity, or do we still have ways to go? What do you say? And how do you um, <laughs> explain that it has been 50 years? And, and if we haven't reached the finish line, why haven't we reached it yet? Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's my day to day work as a gender equity advocate in athletics, um, getting to that gold line, um, that finish line. Lots of sports puns. You know, we can we can do it. Um, get over that hurdle. Um, so basically, I think we have made a lot of progress. And it's important to note that because, you know, positive reinforcement motivates us. We have many more girls and women playing many more opportunities and, and ju not just opportunity, but equity in amenities because we know it means like softball and baseball having similar quality fields or base, uh, basketball schedules for girls and boys teams to be uh, you know similar. You don't wanna have girls playing at 10 p.m. and boys playing at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. We wanna be trading off in the gym space and time, things like that. So we have made a lot of progress, but we are not there yet. Um, and I think some reasons for that I mean, to be frank with you, I think sexism is an issue in society. You know, I think, you know, that sort of sounds very basic, but we do have to kind of call that out sometimes that we see a, a hierarchy um, where sometimes it's boys and men sports can feel more important and somehow prioritized in, in a school or college or community. So we have to recognize that and recognize, too, that, you know, girls sports in high school or women's sports in college are just as important as boys and men's sports. You know, there's no reason one should be more important than the other, uh, especially because these are educational pursuits. I think one of our problems or something that we can work on is re reminding ourselves that these sports are part of an educational experience, not just a standalone endeavor. And so if we want those wonderful character building lessons that sports give to kids and students, let's make sure that they have a positive, equitable experience, you know, in the locker room, on the facilities, in the game time, with the coaches, you know. so. So we have more work to do. I think it's calling out, you know, the inequity, recognizing it's still there. And then, you know, finding that low-hanging fruit to make a change. Like if schedules are unequal for high school soccer, girls soccer versus boys soccer, 
hey, grab the Google spreadsheet and just notice, wait a minute, why are boys getting double the practice time on those fields? Let's let's equalize that. It's not that hard. Mm. Um, There's some questions that usually come from the right of the political spectrum. And oftentimes I don't you know, do that devil's advocate thing or throw it out to guests because I figure those ideas have enough of a platform in society. And that's not what I like to explore on this podcast. However, in the Title IX uh, situation, there are, I want to give you the chance to either knock down these arguments or maybe, you know, see if there's more to them than maybe I'm thinking, um, if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that, that, you know, you hear people on the right say, people who are against Title IX, say that Title IX hurts men's sports or even causes men's sports to disappear. Is there truth to that? Yeah, you know, I, I really like um, myth busting. I'm a big fan of kind of overcoming some presumptions that are out there on Title IX. And I just want to, you know, also start with the fact that, you know, I'm I'm very supportive of of the gender spectrum of of men and boys as allies. I have had some incredible, you know, male coaches and played sports with my brother and my dad growing up. So, you know, for those that talk about Title IX as kind of a hyper feminist agenda, I really want to kind of remember that this is a, a kind of a fairness law and a gender equity overall law. And it's not about one group or another per se, but about, you know, teaching kids and students and, you know, school environments how to how to be equitable because our schools and our universities are are again that microcosm of society where a girl and a boy in a high school seeing gender equity in sports go into the workplace, into the into the greater society with that sense of fairness and equity. Um, and in terms of you know Title IX hurting boys or men's sports. Um, I, no, you know, what we've seen actually is that in the time of Title IX, girls and women's sports have expanded tremendously and boys and men's sports have have sustained or in fact grown. You know, there, there's even more slots for boys and men to play than there were when Title IX was passed. And they're still outpacing girls and women in terms of opportunity numbers. So we're not seeing the taking away, as some might might say. And then the other thing to, to mention is that, you know, I think there's a sense like, oh, well, this or that men's or boys sport was eliminated because of Title IX. But when you look to some of those schools, for example, or colleges, what you see often, and you know, I respect it, I'm, I'm supportive of it, football, you know, it's a popular sport in the United States. But what you often might see at, say, a high school is a very large boys high school program for football, which is, which is great. But they might just sensibly tailor that program and control the rosters so that, you know, those boys get a great experience, but it's not 200 boys per se, it may be 150 or 100. What I see is football sometimes like being really focused upon and sometimes that's eclipsing, I think, other boys sports. They're choosing to put a lot of eggs in the football basket. And and that can, I think, sometimes mean that they're having to, to shrink some of the other boys or men's sports so as to be equal overall, if that makes sense. So no, I don't see Title IX hurting boys or men's sports. I do see sometimes maybe the pie could be a little bit more evenly and, and reasonably distributed amongst all the different sports and all the different endeavors of boys, girls, men, and women. Uh, thank you, that, that was a really helpful answer. The, the, the other argument that I'm sure you've heard, uh, particularly over the last several years, is there's been a movement uh, to compensate uh, people, athletes, scholarship athletes in the hyper revenue producing sports, uh, like men's basketball and football. And there's been an argument that says if, if players are compensated as if they're campus workers, 
that will have the effect of destroying Title IX and bankrupting women's sports on campuses. Is there any research to support that contention? Well, you know, we're really in a new frontier with a name, image, likeness, you know, policies that are happening. I, I will just, you know, kind of say that I've been very K-12 focused in my 10 years of Title IX work. So, you know, I'll defer to the college and university experts who are working with college athletes on, you know, revenue deals and whatnot. I do see, you know, from working with the Women's Sports Foundation and their recent Title IX 50th report, we do see women, um, you know, excelling in, in their in their deals, you know, to the extent that certain women athletes and colleges and universities are, you know, getting revenue from from their endeavors athletically. And and so, you know, I think that there's room for everybody. Um, I, there's a lot of specifics and details in these name and image likeness deals and, and these contracts that certain college athletes are pursuing. You know, it's a whole nother ball of wax. Uh, but, you know, I think there's room for equity. But we do, to your point, have to be mindful if that's the path we're taking, you know, that it be gender equitable. And I, I think there are ways to, to keep Title IX in mind as that happens. Um, and I'd also just personally say, let's also step way back and think again about college and university sports as learning lessons and helping students, you know, excel and, and develop and grow. You know, I think we have lost track a little bit sometimes with college sports on like, what was the point of college sports? It's to be complementary to one's academics and to help someone, you know, work academically toward a job, you know, in, in, in the, in society. So, you know, I just, having been a college volleyball player myself, I can say like, it's intense, you know, it's just growing ever more intense for college athletes to balance studies and athletics. And so I just also kind of remind everyone to think like, Hey, is this direction we want to head in college sports in general? that people are trying to get deals with, you know, uh, athletic apparel companies from their dorm rooms while they play sports and try to study. Yeah. And uh, there's so much to say about that. Um, I, I, for, I, for one, think that there that there could be actually a counterintuitive result of name, image and likeness where it actually shows how popular some of these women athletes are. Yes. And it exposes the absence of institutional and media support that, that women's sports has gotten by showing on a grassroots level just how many eyeballs women's sports draw in terms of passion. Like yes, yes. Follow, you know, I, I hate to make everything about branding, but the idea that people will take seriously and follow what someone says on Instagram because they're de dedicated to the sport in such an a, a incredibly passionate way. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, you know, just a fun kind of fact that's related is that, you know, women entrepreneurs, women business people more often played sports growing up, you know, so there's definitely a connection between sports access and, and business success, at least for women. So, you know, frankly, we haven't connected all these dots, but I do think, yes, I, I think there is um, a, an argument to be made that we're going to see more women in the, in the spotlight because of, of these new regulations, which again, are still panning out. I mean, some of it's so new in the States and, and NCAA and, and nationwide. But, um, and, and I also just wanna you know, plug the fact that women's pro sports, women's college sports, they're so amazing to watch and they're so enjoyable for families and folks to, to spectate. And so I do hope some of these floodgates opening, which are, you know, it's not all easy to manage and handle, but some of the opening of these doors will indeed be, bring women into sort of entrepreneurial lanes that they weren't in before. And, and will also show again, just how great girls, women's college pro sports are. 
I, I think we, we have a tidal wave against us right now, uh, both in terms of the climate of the country and the a lot of the political opportunism on, frankly, scapegoating trans kids. And say, and I, I mean, you don't have to respond if if, if you don't want to, Kim. But I, I, I do want to say, like, it must as someone like yourself who's dedicated your life to women's sports and participation to hear some of these actors say that they're defending women's sports when they've never shown an interest in women's sports in their political or personal lives. I mean, that must be grating. I'll yeah, just- yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, without weighing in, into the politics per se, you know, I will say, you know, Title IX's 50th year, and as we talk about access for girls and women in sports, what I would love to see more of is whomever's at the microphone talking about access and who should have access and, and a level playing field. I'd love to see them, you know, recruit more women coaches in the, you know, youth basketball league and, you know, make sure that softball field at, at the high school is looking just as good as that baseball field. And, you know, making sure that that schools are, you know, giving good buses to girls teams and boys teams as they get to and kids of any gender, regardless of, uh, of their team affiliation, you know, to, they're able to get to practices and games in a safe, you know, productive manner. You know, just again, I, I think we get really pigeonholed and down that rabbit hole on this and that issue when we're you know, not thinking enough about just how to have healthy, happy kids. And, and I'll just remind us that I've seen in the pandemic a lot of kids sidelined uh, from sports and the devastating mental and physical effects of kids not having access to play, literally just walking outside to, to run around, to throw a ball, catch a ball, see a friend. So, you know, I think that any energy we have toward these different you know, political issues should be diverted as quickly as possible to making sure every kid gets that chance to be physically active and play a sport, given the wonderful life lessons they can give to any child. You know, and I think particularly in these divided, polarized times where sometimes it seems like nothing is getting done that's positive. To me, Title IX has always been very powerful as an object lesson that, you know, federal legislation can change people's lives for the better and open up spaces that previously were not open. And so I, I, I don't know if, if you agree, but, but I think that on the 50th year, that's something worth holding up as, as a sign of of what we can do. Yes, 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 absolutely. It was a bipartisan effort, you know, and Patsy Mink was uh, one of the driving, you know, senatorial forces out of Hawaii for this legislation. And my understanding, she wasn't permitted to go to med school. She's a woman of a, a rare woman of color in the Senate, ended up going to law school, ended up becoming a senator. And she recognized with her colleagues across the aisle in 1972 that women and girls weren't getting the full educational experience um, that they should have. And so, yes, I I think it was actually a really wonderful and remarkable effort federally. um, And that people also don't realize, Dave, that like applies in all of our states, you know, like a high school in Alaska and a high school in Arkansas, you know, are all subject to Title IX. And that means that, you know, they need to give enough seats to girls at the athletics table and make sure those folding chairs, those seats are working equally well, you know, as the boys have or whomever else. And so there's something, you know, kind of beautifully simple and and wonderful about the progress made that's very inspiring, to your point, in this very uh, divided political climate we have right now. Well, this has been a terrific interview, and I really appreciate your openness, uh, Kim, about your own history and about uh, all the knowledge you brought to the table on Title IX. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you would like to add? Yeah, you know, one thing I'm just so passionate about, I mean, I have been lucky to have the opportunity to play sports growing up. Um, 
you know, fun fact, I'm the shortest in my family at 5'10", and I do have this amazing kind of dynasty of volleyball players that I've, I've descended from. But my goal is to make sure that any kid, re regardless of aptitude, gender, socioeconomics, race, has that chance to play. And, you know, Title IX, I think, is a really helpful framework for athletic directors, coaches, uh, school sports and college sports leaders to instill that fairness. And so we've done a lot. We've made a lot of progress. Many more girls and women are playing. But the, le the, the level of the playing field is, is not indeed level yet. And I hope that we can take this anniversary as a call to action to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, let's take one more look at that middle school, the high school, the college. And, you know, the March Madness tweet that we heard, you know, women's basketball not being treated equally, that is practically, you know, a lot of high schools and colleges are still dealing with those unequal weight rooms, for example. And yet we can fix it. You know, the world has lots of problems that we're working on, but evening out two different weight rooms is totally doable in our lifetime, if not next month and next year. So I just hope that we can enjoy that we can make a lot of a lot of further progress under Title IX, and and the formula, the ingredients are not complicated. Like we can all do that together. And and look at the dividends. You know, girls running around playing softball and soccer, and you know, volleyball, and and going into college, getting scholarships. You know, going on to the business world, whatever they may do, it's really wonderful. So I, I do hope we can feel really good about Title IX's 50th, and and do even more in the next 50 years. Awesome. And how can we keep up with the work that you're doing? Oh, thank you. So I, being part of the Gender Equity Initiative at the Positive Coaching Alliance, I'm putting out resources with an incredible team of, of staffers and external partners on, a get, again, like how to get girls in the game, how to get more women coaches. Um, quick fact would be youth sports coaches across our country, are there's about 25% women that are youth sports coaches. But we all know, you know, you and I know, a woman athlete who would be a great coach who hasn't been tapped or trained yet to be a great youth sports coach. So that's the kind of thing folks can do. Come to Positive Coaching Alliance's website or some of our workshops, and they can find out, hey, how do I jump in as a coach? How do I be an ally if you're a man who's coaching and you want to know how to coach girls better? We have tools on that. How to instill gender equity in your school or park and rec program. We have tons of tools, and we will have even more in the coming months. So appreciate the time and the support and uh, for being an ally to Positive Coaching Alliance. And what music have you been listening to as you've been speaking about Title IX this year? Ooh, like a, a Desert Island Discs kind of question here. I like that. Gosh, you, you know, um, oh, man, that's a hard one. I, I, you know, I'm a big Aretha fan. So I'd, I'd have to say, you know, Aretha Franklin, her story, her resilience, you know, incredibly inspiring. I mean, she is just one of the absolute best. So I'd say any Aretha tune, you know, is very inspiring for, for a volleyball warm-up. I highly recommend throwing some Aretha on during the uh, pregame. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thanks for having me. Keep up the great work. I so appreciate all you're doing. Awesome. Uh, we'll be back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast.
And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, the word sports washing has been used so often by critics of the international business of sports, it's almost become a cliche. For the uninitiated, sports washing is when a PR-friendly sporting event is used by a nation, usually by a murderous authoritarian leadership, as a propaganda tool to provoke good feelings and associations with their regime. Famous examples of this from history include the 1936 Olympics held in Hitler's Germany and Zaire, now known as the Republic of Congo, uh, the dictator Mobutu Sese Seko, hosting arguably boxing's most famous fight, the 1974 Rumble in the Jungle between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Yet users of this phrase seem to reserve it for dictatorships. Sports washing needs to be understood as something that is indulged in by all governments when sports are used as a tool to achieve anti-poor, pro-development policy goals that people would otherwise oppose. Currently in Los Angeles, hosting the 2028 Summer Olympics has also brought with it an attack on the unhoused population as part of the preparations. The city of Los Angeles would be persecuting the unhoused whether the Olympics were coming or not, but the shine of the games provides both reason and cover. Sports washing is in the news right now because of the new LIV Gold Tour, underwritten by Saudi Arabia. Some of the biggest names in the sport, including Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson, have taken as much as nine figures of Saudi money for the mighty purpose of getting paid. Mickelson now infamously spoke to this several weeks ago when he said, the Saudis are scary motherfuckers to get involved with. We know they killed Khashoggi, speaking of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. They've been able to get by with manipulative, coercive, strong-arm tactics because we, the players, had no recourse. In other words, Mickelson, somewhere in his own mind, is acting not for the nine-figure check that he's getting, but in order to break the PGA's cartel-like control of the game. He looks in the mirror and he sees Kurt Flood with a putter. And that fortune he's receiving is just the spoils of war. This is, of course, nonsense. People like Kurt Flood were risking everything to win freedom of movement and freedom of their labor not securing an obscene bag of cash for their troubles. In addition to Saudi Arabia's horrific human rights record, it is now universally understood that they played a role in the attacks of 9-11, where 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi. This reality has added another wrinkle to the story as it has pushed an injection of nationalism in the backlash against Mickelson and his compatriots. The group 9-11 Families United sent an open letter to the golfers blasting them as Sports Illustrated reported, it expressed outrage that the group would become business partners with the new league and participate in sports washing. As for Mickelson, he stammered a response about having deep empathy with those who lost loved ones on 9-11. But the group and their national chair, Terry Strada, whose husband was killed on 9-11, uh, responded to Mickelson saying, Phil knows exactly what he's doing. He and his fellow LIV golfers should be ashamed. 
They're helping the Saudi regime sports wash their reputation in return for tens of millions of dollars. At the very same time, our government is rolling out more damning evidence of Saudi culpability in the 9-11 attacks. Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour commissioner, piled on by saying, you'd have to be living under a rock to not understand the implications of involving yourself with the Saudis. There's no greater sign of Mickelson's depravity than that he has allowed the PGA Tour to actually adopt something of a moral high ground when they suspended the LIV players indefinitely. The PGA is an organization built on a history of racism, sexism, and exclusion. They have also combed the earth, sanctioning tournaments in places that engage in sports washing and have horrific records on human rights. The commercial bank Qatar Masters has been going strong for 25 years. Their cartel-like arrogance has certainly earned the resentment of many players, but going from the PGA and rushing into the arms of the Saudi Arabian royal family is like going from the frying pan and into the incinerator. All of these people deserve each other. But if these episodes further the understanding of sports washing and its uses, then especially with the Los Angeles Olympics and the World Cup in Qatar looming, we can be prepared to combat the next round of propaganda through play. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. Look, I I don't have just stand up and just sit down awards. Uh, Jake is getting ready for graduation, going into high school, so nothing with Jake. I did want to give an update as to what's happening uh, with Brittany Griner. She detained once again for another 30 days. The Russian court says they're going after more evidence. This is such pure, unequivocal horseshit uh, in terms of what's going on. I mean, what's really happening is, you know, Russia and Putin recognize that Brittany Griner has value as a hostage. Like she's not even calling her like a, a defendant makes no sense at this point. There's no trial of any legitimacy happening. There's only these. I, mean, I don't think she's ever going to see a trial. Frankly, there's just going to be like a series of. Uh, public delays in her trial until the U.S. trades uh, this figure who's known as the Merchant of Death uh, for flooding Sub-Saharan Africa with arms. Uh, that's who Russia wants back. And I, I think that there's something about that that's, that's really staggering to me. Um, I mean, Putin's priority list is very interesting. And frankly, our priority list in not trying to get Brittany Griner out as soon as possible uh, is very upsetting. I mean, I think, you know what I think? Trade whoever they want to trade. They want that merchant to death, they get the merchant to death. Uh, if anything, it'll highlight just the depravity of Putin and his allies while highlighting how much the U.S. supports Brittany Griner and everything that Brittany Griner represents. Of course, what I just described is a world of my imagination 
and not the world that actually exists. So we need to, as Frederick Douglass said, agitate, 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 to advocate for Brittany Griner and keep on pushing until she comes home. Well, that's all the time we do have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Kim Turner. Terrific interview. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. If folks want to, you know, support the show. One way to do it is give it a review, write a little review, uh, all those little things like spin the algorithm a little bit and make it more likely that people will find the show and know it exists. Uh, For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.